0: So, this time on Love Letters Bound in Gold Handcuffs, we have a bumper episode for you! During the summer of 1938, Roland and Lee went on this amazing trip around the Balkans. Inspired by their time together, on his return to England, Roland went on to write a poem called The Road is Wider Than Lock. This is featured here in its entirety. However, as a surrealist work, it can be a bit tricky to unpack what's going on. So we've included the thoughts of Anthony Penrose, my dad, and Roland and Lee's son. However, before we even get there, let's return to the letters. At the end of the last episode, we'd left Roland somewhat desperately trying to get a response from Lee about their plans to finally meet. So this letter is on Lee's creamy white airmail paper. And it's a short one because she's about to dash off and get on a boat um, to go and join Roland. And it's dated the 11th of June, 1938. Darling, unless I get embargoed on the last moment, I'm sailing in a couple of hours on the Ionia. My luggage is already on board. I arrive Athens Monday, cruise around a bit and will be free on the 2nd of July and expecting you. I'm taking my car, a Packard's Who seater with a dicky seat outside, and rather a lot of luggage, which includes a blanket roll and camp bed and lunch basket for at least my Greek part of the trip. They can be abandoned later on if necessary. Or maybe you want one too. I'm very keen on seeing some of Romania, Transylvania and the Carpathians, and Belgrade, and especially Warsaw, which sounds divine. I just got your letter as I was leaving Cairo this morning. In the meantime, I'd been considerably worried that you'd already gone to America. Give my love to Paul, Noosh, Tripotin, etc. We don't really need anyone with us on the trip if you don't want to bother. And we could plan on joining them later. Especially I'd like to see Man too. So maybe something could be done about Le Groupe, etc. Write me care of Cooks Athens or WIRE as I'm not sure what hotel and the hops are away on leave. I'll be on a cruise until the 1st of July, but we will manage to get mail from time to time. I can't begin to tell you how I'm looking forward to then. Would you bring me a rubber object? Not surrealist. The curd Dr Mallison gave me is noted as medium, soft brown. Look at it to see if it's the same shape. And two tubes of GP ointment, non-greasy. I have no idea where you buy these things, but think these preparations necessary. Love, Lee. There's a note scribbled across the top of the page, which says, Obviously you don't need your car unless other people come too. I'd rather just you.
1: Hampstead, 14th of June. My love, I've just got your letter. I find there is a boat, probably a smelly sort of a barge, leaving Marseille on the 28th and arriving at Athens on July 1st. It is called the... Cairo City of the Anglo Egyptian Mail, so I'm booking a passage for myself at once. Paul and Noosh are still hesitant and probably won't come. They leave here for Paris tomorrow. Darling, the idea of seeing you again makes me all collie wobbly. I will bring your gadgets and some camping materials, such as a rug and air mattress. I've got a small light tent, large enough for two, which I can bring if you think it would be useful. Otherwise, my luggage won't be very bulky. Just send me a word to let me know if you want anything else, and particularly how to find you in Athens. Noosh and Paul send you their love and look forward to seeing you soon. We talk of you no end. All my love to your love, Roland. Affectionate Postscript from Noosh 17th of June, 1938 Darling, I've got my berth on the Cairo city and leave here today week. I hope to get news of you very soon. Meanwhile, I have tried to get your gadgets and enclose the reply from GP... I think the only way will be for you to make careful measurements of the old cap or trace round the outside on a piece of paper. I am writing to GP to say that they will probably hear from you direct and that they are to keep the four as payment. I am very busy getting everything fixed for my departure. I think of nothing but seeing you again. Write to me a line, darling, to say where I can find you in Athens. I love you. Roland.
0: So this is on Lee's deep blue purple paper with its matching envelope and it's typed even though it's quite a short note and it's dated the 18th of June 1938. Darling I'm off in five minutes for a trip of a week or so and we will be able to get mail once so let me know just what happens. You said the first of July here. I don't think that I can get back until the second, third or fourth, depending on the condition of the winds and sea. So if it would suit you better to take a later boat, do so. There might be a better one. Or would it amuse you to look at the Parthenons until I wander in? I've got guidebooks, etc. and all the maps in Creation for Greece. But bring yourself an international driving licence and some infrared film. Lots of hormones and good humour. All my love, Lee. You can get me at Cook's or Grand Britannia Hotel. I think it's interesting, and perhaps no wonder, considering Roland and Lee's surrealist backgrounds, that they played around with using infrared film. This particular type of film, due to its sensitivity to light outside of the visible spectrum, although black and white leads to some quite otherworldly images brought by the different contrasts it brings out, it would really have appealed to Lee's love of experimentation too. So this is on quite small writing paper and it's got the logo and everything of the hotel that she's staying at embossed on the top, which is the Grand Britannia Hotel in Athens. It hasn't got a date on it. I'm guessing it's very early July and it's handwritten very badly. And in it, she alludes to the fact that she can't meet with Roland quite yet because she's with somebody and she's probably actually still with Aziz at the time. Darling, we do mess things, or rather I do. I tried tactfully to say I wasn't available until the 2nd of July. It would sink me endlessly to get caught out with you before Saturday. Imagine finally being under the same roof, in the same country, at even the same continent, and not being together. I want to tear off with you to Mycinos, Saturday night for the weekend. That will make a good start, and we can start again in Athens. I feel most humbly shy about you, like a bride or something. All my love, Lee. We'll see you Saturday morning after the aeroplane from Alex leaves. It's about 7.30 back here as the aerodrome is in Pirée. So, a couple of days later, and almost a year since they first met, they finally get to meet again for their trip. They travel together from Athens to Romania. Obviously, since they were in each other's company, we don't have any letters from this time, so it's hard to track down what happened and when. However, what we do have is a rather remarkable record of their time together in the form of Lee and Roland's pictures and of a poem, The Road is Wider Than Long, written by Roland.
2: In 1938, Roland and Lee met in Athens, and they made a wonderful journey by car in Lee's big packard, all the way up through Greece, through the Balkans, to Romania. Their first part of their journey was actually by ferry to Mykonos and Delos, and then back on the mainland they headed to Corinth and down to Napulia, before doubling back to Epidaurus. From there, they went on to Delphi and all of the wonderful legends and myths about the Delphi oracle. And from there, to Meteora. They went north from there to Kavala, which is where the famous Mehmet Ali Pasha, the 19th century Ottoman ruler of Egypt, came from. And Roland photographed the equestrian statue dedicated to him, which was draped and all wrapped up. And he used that image later in a painting called Enemy the Sun. From Kavala, they continued north to Sofia in Bulgaria and then on to Bucharest. That was their main objective because they had in their pocket an introduction to a guy called Harry Browner. He was the brother of the painter Victor Browner, who Roland knew well from London. And Harry was professor of music at Bucharest University. And his passion was collecting recordings on wax cylinders of the many types of folk music that were current at the time and he amassed this fantastic library of music which of course was all soon going to be wiped away by the march of the war and and the change of political and social events but he was also fascinated by local customs cultures costumes and everything and when lee and Roland arrived with a car and with cameras he was really excited because he immediately proposed a wonderful journey into the interior of Romania and they went uh, on this road trip all around a kind of circular using using Bucharest more as a center they made this kind of circular clockwise journey Looking for places where there would always be people in costume and performing the original ancient dances, or festivals as well. Um, to begin with, right in Bucharest, they met up with the Calusari dancers. These people uh, were were well known. They were itinerant dance troops, and they had this extraordinarily noisy, um, very high-spirited dance which had an enormous amount of folklore legend wrapped up in it then they very quickly found villages in the south where the old dances and the old music was being performed um, and they carried on slowly going north into the Transylvania uh, into the gorge district uh, where they found this fantastic feast the three-day Parastas feast um, Lee photographed, Roland photographed, Harry probably took the notes and we had this incredible record of what went on. When Roland returned he had a whole bunch of photographs which he himself had taken and memories and he said that he didn't like writing diaries so he thought he would make the journey into a poem and he did so by writing it down more or less as it returned to him in his memory. Now, of course, when we think back over an event, we don't recall it in a linear sequential form. The events are all jumbled up and rearranged. And that's exactly how we get it in this little book, which he produced called The Road is Wider Than Long. It began as a handwritten manuscript. And when we see the pages with their beautifully calligraphed lines and the photographs fitting snugly in and the watercolors that he made around them it is really a most beautiful work of art it's also in essence a love poem because it was his recollections of this extraordinarily wonderful time he'd had with lee who he was so madly in love with and We get little snatches of that in the poem as it goes along.
1: The road is wider than long. They breathe with the night in houses whose marble veins are washed with sailcloth, whose carpets are covered with olives, whose gardens begin under the sea.
2: Kavala is well known for its production of olives. So that wonderful line, that must be a reference to Kavala. In fact, there's a photograph of an olive grove on that page.
1: They breathe with the night, enemy the sun closes their eyes, the days of summer lasts, until the earthquake hatches from the dream of heat, the dream of cold. Let us through. Lift your four striped arms and let us through. We need dancing, young grass, children to sing for rain.
2: We find this wonderful picture of children dressed in leaves, uh, dancing and clapping, while adults throw buckets of water over them. This is the ceremony of paparuda. And what happens is that when it gets very, very dry, they have a rain dance, and the children dance around like this to to bring the rain. Um, And the rain is of course simulated in the dance by people chucking water over them. And it looks wonderful and it's playful, but of course it has its roots in way, way back in their earliest history, before they became Christians probably. This was some pagan ritual that's been adapted and survived. There are so many little things like that, so many wonderful observations that Roland makes in his poetry and in his images. We find there's a lot of importance placed on the Roma people. And I think that Lee and Roland immediately had a sympathy with these people because they were even then being persecuted. There was a problem, a medical problem. People had discovered the Roma had TB and they didn't want them to come into the towns. And so they stopped them from moving. And to to stop a nomadic people from moving is just about a death sentence because they rely on being able to uh, make their migrations. in order to survive so we have the lines in the river a gypsy washes the inflated bellies of her children bellies full of wood pulp yelling and government regulations you can kind of feel the oppressive quality of that and he goes on the nomads may not move their tents the markets are closed to them well with the markets closed to them how can they sell their products you know they were they were sort of subsistence farmers anyway and they had a small surplus to sell and without being able to sell that they were they were doomed so what we're doing is we're witnessing and documenting a real racial persecution that was going on at this moment and i think it resonated very very much with with lee and rowland
1: ask have we got time we want more than they are willing to allow, their wasp helmets, their guns pointing to the ticket office. Have we got time? Have we got papers? Have we got money? Have we got ice? Dragomir Stanescu wants to see you. He has got the ice with eggs painted on it, made specially by the peasants. But he knows that we shall not need it nor anything else. It will be dark. We shall not know which is the inn and which the church. That's the prison for the fascists. That's the graveyard for the communists. No politics here.
2: Politics were a recurring thread in Lee and Roland's lives. They were not political people as such. They didn't seek office. They didn't represent any particular party but they stood very firmly in a kind of way associated with Quaker people for peace and freedom and justice and truth. And they were, I think, horrified when they saw these things being subverted or abused in in any culture, ours or anybody else's. And so we have these political references running right through here. And although it's a love poem, This is not incongruous because political concern was very much a fundamental part of their existence. So it's not surprising that we keep getting these references. It mattered to them. It was important to them both. This cart
1: that blocks the road has been at work for 600 years. Standing to their necks in water, its men cut reeds, leeches eat their bones. Their throats are too dry to sing. They have not earned six days leisure, six days to sing Aufsack, and the road is blocked. In the river a gypsy washes the inflated bellies of her children, bellies full of wood pulp, yelling and government regulations. Nomads may not move their tents. The markets are closed to them. The prefect has no time to waste, Though I am obliged to listen to you, I am not obliged to give you satisfaction. Do not disturb me. Let me get on with my work. She tore her dress, a dress covered with a dress, and covered with a dress, she tore her dress to mend it, joined by her fingers, torn by her breasts. Her dress tears from within. Well, Cloud, I, Stone, the road is wider than long, Trees are thicker than tall. Wells reach to the clouds. Their blood is more solid than their bones. They have filtered it, churned it, kneaded it, refined it, driven over it in the open fields, thrown it to the wind, beaten it with flails, ground it, dried it, baked it in kilns. Their blood, the lion, coloured forms of antiquity, stands in groups round the church dressed in veils and embroidered coats waiting endlessly for a candle to be put out by the rain.
2: There's a wonderful photograph here of a whole line of horses all tied together. They're being driven round in a circle over the crop that's been spread out on the bare hard ground and they wheel around in a circle trampling the crop underneath which is uh, a way of thrashing because the horse's hooves knock the grain out of the stems and then they will winnow it. And there's something so organic about the whole process. It's rather really, rather wonderful. And I think Roland was fascinated by that. He was always fascinated by food production and agriculture and farming anyway. And I think this was a natural fit for him to take an interest in these things. And then of course it immediately segues on to this fantastic feast of, uh, of Parastas where at a certain time of the year there's a three-day feast and everybody puts food out near the local church for poor people and people who are beggars or or crippled or whatever and uh, it's is it's just this immense celebration of good things to eat and kindness they who have time have no time it
1: is the same today as last friday as the day we stole the corn as the day she washed her hair And it rained from the blue.
2: It's that wonderful timelessness, but with time, because they're not dominated by clocks or calendars. Their calendar is the ripening of the crop in the field, or whether the mare has got in foal, or whether the pig is going to have her piglets. That's the sort of thing that sets their time clock not what the day of the week is. And I think Rowan has captured that beautifully here.
1: Have you seen the woman aged 100 asleep on the sledge? The man who lost a leg in America and an arm at Bran? The blind man with three eyes? The dwarf who can play the flute with his foot? They can all sing, every jack man. And the little girl? whose breasts begin to break the plain, whose sisters lie clothed in crops, their valleys fertile.
2: Then there's always the metaphor of human fertility and the fertility of the crops. You know, the, the, the metaphor there is, I think, significant of the closeness to nature that these people had and how impressive Roland found that.
1: Their springs sacred. Vapours escape from the rocks, writing tomorrow's news in the sky.
2: I think that's a direct reference to Delphi, uh, which is probably where these photographs were taken. Delphi was famous for having had an oracle. Her name, we're told, was Pythia, and she used to enter a cleft in the rock, and breathe in a gas that was emanating from the rocks and then utter fantastic predictions as to what was going to happen so vapors escape from the rocks writing tomorrow's news in the sky that is just such a wonderful way of of referring i think to pythea's predictions we we've got it there it's just i think a perfect metaphor And then he goes on. We have forgotten yesterday, and tomorrow's news is bad news. Yes, tomorrow's news is going to be bad news for them. We're 1938. Within a couple of years, this whole beautiful, innocent world is going to be torn to pieces, turned upside down, and people will be suffering and dying.
1: We have forgotten yesterday. And tomorrow's news is bad news. Our children need medical attention. We need a house without walls, surrounded by fire. The doors open to all who can see. Our road is wider than long. She cut her finger while mixing salad. Nobody could understand the trees wore white aprons and played sea music at night. Their black leaves shaded the sky from the glare of lamps. They didn't understand a word. But they laughed. The olives, the thistles, the dust boil together in their sleep. There is one white sheep in a black flock. There are donkeys, shepherds, goats, old dust, a new car, and a bridge.
2: Again, I think he's conscious of the incongruity of these two people from a completely alien culture in their. Completely alien machine called a car, you can just feel how incongruous that new car would be in that rural, timeless setting
1: at the end of the road. Shiploads of light are sucked down between stone walls into a new sea.
2: I don't know if you've ever been to really hot places like like sort of Greece and so on, where you just feel. In the shady streets, the light is being sucked out of the sky somehow. And I I can really get Roland's analogy there.
1: At Colchis, everybody is in the street. There is no room in the streets. There is no room in the houses. They have come for the earthquake and they don't understand. They smile. They send a pair of eyes with ice. The little girls talk endlessly holding hands across the road, they clutch at my fingers, there are sixteen children swinging on my eyelids.
2: Again I remember going into places where they were very unfamiliar with visitors from outside. The extraordinarily disarming thing is how the children are often so very friendly and trusting to these people, white people who are there, they would never seen anything like them before but they they would still come up and want to want to play with us and have games with us and I, I just thought this was this was wonderful. and It's clearly a similar sort of thing that Roland is referring to here. And he does observe the children very carefully.
1: They show us the way to a beach with flying fish and laugh. At Delphi the mountain translated her voice. How imprudent of you to have died. Oh how we miss you. When your father comes home You will not be there to hold his bicycle. Why have you not kissed me for three days? Why don't you smile? Oh, darling, how we miss you. You are going on a long journey. You will meet three green hunters at a gate. They will show you the way to your new home. Oh, my darling, how we miss you. How unkind of you to die. But should you try to come back, you will suffer more than us the ropes that bind you are strong the horse will lead us to your grave the tree that dies with you will be torn down your heart will be filled with knives
2: there is this heart-rending sequence of when they witnessed a funeral of a little girl there's a photograph of her here lying in her house before she gets taken to the cemetery and it connects right through to that sense of grief those parents must be feeling it must have been devastating for them now of course the only thing that was even more frightening for people than death was the thought of being revisited by those who have died and very much and and they made a, a, a lot of effort to be certain that nobody was going to come back from the dead anyway there's a warning here Don't try and come back. Your heart will be filled with knives.
1: The Macedonian, whose flute kills, stands everywhere. His bears will dance. They forget the dust for a little music. The Macedonian will be able to buy a pair of gold eyes for his bride.
2: Roland has a photograph here of three bears with a group of musicians this was actually one of the way these nomadic people used to earn a living which was by making the bears dance for uh, as a performance for a festival or a wedding or something like that and the bears were trained and they got paid and hopefully the bears then got fed and it's pipe and drum music which is most incredibly visceral wonderfully emotive Form of music is crude. It goes straight to your marrow if you're fortunate enough to hear it in the right place, and that's how they did it. They they played and the bears danced, and this was their way of life as they went from place to place and town to town or whatever. Then, the war came, and when Lee went back in 1946, she was looking for these people, because one of the things that bears did was they massaged you you lay on the ground and the bear sat on you and wiggled around and slid up and down and it gave the most incredibly uh severe but effective form of massage and lee by this time had a terribly bad back from all of her wartime activities and she was looking for a massage from a bear and she couldn't find any because they had mostly been persecuted out of existence by this time, by the Nazis and others, but she did manage to find one. And it gave her a massage. It's a wonderful photograph of her with a bear sitting on her back. And it cured her. It fixed her back. So there we go. I wonder if we should have bears on the National health.
1: That will be after the rain, after the storm, which makes of the mountains a lake. Blinding with red hail, mixing earth, fire, water and air in the same pot. Hitting across the steppe, on both cheeks, the naked peasant. Until then, nothing can be done. We can only talk in whispers in the hotel. The town is sick, but no one dare say so.
2: There's this underlying hint there's something wrong. And I think this refers to the very volatile political times that we were in. We can only talk in whispers in the hotel. The town is sick and no one dares say so. There's very likely a fear there of being overheard by the secret police. It's unlikely anything would happen to Lee and Roland, but they might get some of their friends in trouble by associating with them or by saying the wrong thing for which the friends could be punished. And so everybody has to be very, very careful.
1: Maritza, up behind the north station, could cure it. Her green leaves, the strength of her pigeon voice, heal where other music wounds. Each note wounds the last, heals the porters, the suburban peasant, the policeman and the minister's wife, all go to her. She gave power to the last dictator and then killed him with a needle, the golf magnate, whose image is already painted among the saints, will also die suddenly. Maritza is strong. The porter puts his sou into the belly of her guitar. Her understanding is his security.
2: The woman called Maritza was very well known as a folk singer. She has been recorded and she has this strange and kind of like dove-like way of singing and and repeating and there's refrains and so on, which are really quite haunting. And her music was extremely popular, she was well known. And Harry was the first person, I think, to ever record her. So at least she is recorded and recognized now. But of course, at that moment, she was just another, rather more famous than most, singer. There's this wonderful thing here. Maritza is strong, the porter puts his sou, that's his money, into the belly of her guitar understanding is his security. For me, that is a reference to how tradition and folk music is actually a form of security. It's a ritual that people go to and go through which confirms their social position, their social beliefs and their position in society. And without that, again, it's one less peace of security, one step closer to drifting.
1: Every evening the shop burns. White blocks in bandages receive their guests. A rich organisation fetches visitors from the cellars and spreads them out in groups. Tomorrow they will be driven to the next city. They see the town, the town sees them. They like it. Lovers who escape, who are free to separate free to reunite, leave their tongues plaited together, hidden in the dry grass, folded in peasant cloth, embalmed in the green memories of desire.
2: Of course, the underlying thing about this book is it's a love story. It's a book that Roland made because he wanted to demonstrate to Lee how important she was in his life and how important he felt their lives together would be. He wanted them to be companions as well as lovers. That's terribly important because they never wanted to own each other. It was part of their surrealist ideal, which was the underpinning of their way of life. They very much believed in the freedom of the individual and that if two people were in love, that means they didn't own each other. They had a right to go off and do whatever they wanted with anybody else. Sex and love were decoupled. But the thing was that love wasn't. And if you loved somebody, that was for real, and that was forever. And in a way, they lived that.
1: Then the journeys alone that fill the world become fertile. In each tower, on each headland, as the frontier is past, lovers watching for the red train have grown into each other's eyes.
2: I sometimes wonder whether I'm reading too much into this, but every now and then I just find a line and it resonates in such a way. Well, that's what poetry does, doesn't it? Then the journeys alone that fill the world become fertile. The journey can be an arid thing. if You're just going from one place to the next without much concern of the journey, just the importance of getting to your destination. But what these people are doing is they're making the journey so important. That journey, the journey that fills the world, it becomes fertile. Because they have invested so much in really examining every aspect of what they are confronted with on that journey, it becomes their experience. It's really significant and important to them. They're making every minute count. It's all about like being in the now and every and, and, and experiencing everything full on. And I think this was so important to them. For me that suggests the totality of a completely immersive experience they're so totally taken over by what they're doing because they put so much of themselves into it that they have literally like grown into each other's eyes i think it's a lovely nightmare
1: the color of their hope is the white feather of a volcano the blue eye which opens in the clouds before sunset the stage of a Greek theatre echoing the smile that drops from her lips.
2: He talks about the stage of a Greek theatre echoing the smile that drops from her lips, and that's right beside a fabulous photograph of the amphitheatre of Epidaurus. In the middle of the stage of the amphitheatre, there's a round disc of stone, and if you stand there and drop a coin on the disc, that noise that ching can be heard right at the back of the auditorium because the acoustics are so incredibly brilliantly sharp and his line the stage of a greek theater echoing the smile that drops from her lips well lee's smile was amazing it was just so powerful and magical and of course it was immortalized in that massive painting by man ray of her great big red lips that he called observatory time and that painting is like 2.3 meters wide and so if that fell on the stone, yes, it would almost be earthquake proportion.
1: Like bats they make love by day, their heads buried in the stones, their feet searching for lions in the hills. At night we found a deserted city, water ran under the streets, the houses dry and full of herbs, formed the labyrinth of dead shell. A boy inside a column was still alive.
2: At Delphi, when it does rain, the water is led through little channels that go under the paving in the areas around it, in what used to be the town. And so you can see this may have been replicated in other places. And this idea of finding a boy inside a column, and he was still alive. I mean, it's just, it's like the way that Sometimes when we go to these places the history is so vivid that it does feel as though there are people inside the stones talking to us about what happened in the olden times here. Another 500
1: years will deliver him. The Americans are the first in the field with an offer of clothes and a scholarship. We climb and bleed with the thistles. Our fingers feel into the tomb of the saint. If you are lying, your finger will be trapped. If you tell the truth, it will lead you out to the other side, to an island, where they dance in the hangman's bedroom, where the guns are used as saxophones, and the powder magazine is to let for love. In the rocks are pools where the sturgeon can take 40 passengers, a time to visit the wreck of a Turkish battleship. Tea is served on board, and the fish have become so tame. That they are willing to show visitors over their genital organs. Each rock that floats above is crowned by a monastery and the monks can lift a man from water as deep as the eye of a goat.
2: Meteora. I think I'm right in saying that in Greek the name means rock in the sky or rock that's floating and certainly these are rocks that go into into the sky. It's erosion that was once made by the sea and it's left these vast great columns which are vertical sheer sided columns and they are the perfect place for people to build monasteries especially if they were being persecuted as the early christians were and there's about 24 25 monasteries all around there uh, some of which are still intact and and occupied today when roland was there with the you had to actually be hauled up in a basket, which was absolutely perilous. There was a sort of winch at the top, and um, some you could reach by going over a rickety bridge. But it was a huge, actually, act of faith to be committed to going up in this basket in the first place. Uh, so we get monks can lift a man from water as deep as the eye of a goat. You see, the marvellous thing is that Meteora was once underwater. It was under the sea, and This I think comes through in the lines, to their dry gardens where a drunken Pope, his face consumed by frost, sits all alone with religion. And there's this reference to the geology, the topography, to the religion and everything that all bound up here. I think Roland had an immediate affinity with the landscape of Meteora because it is so strange and beautiful and surreal. These enormous columns, these sheer-faced cliffs with canyons around them. The thing was that it was almost like it was designed by a surrealist because it could really only be expected to exist as a dream, but here it was as a reality.
1: To their dry gardens where a drunken pope, his face consumed by frost, sits alone with religion. But they are working day and night. The new military road is approaching, the rubber-seated pilgrims will come to a world of dead music. Blow across drained swamps and mountains caught in a net. Magic lived in this rock. These stones have seen 17 battles. The Assyrians, the Turks and the Australians landed here.
2: I think you might be referring to Thermopylae, which is where the Spartans defended Greece against the Persians. And There have been many battles in this area. One of the things about Greek history is that there was always a battle going on somewhere. So it's not surprising that Roland writes, these crops grow in human blood. They are the finest in Europe. Yeah, it's a sobering thought that really, the number of people that have fought and died over that piece of property. And of course, the dependence of the Greeks on, having an, an incredibly strong army, military force, is reflected in their art. And we often see, as Rowland has recorded, pictures of armour, or armour-clad people, and that sort of thing. And, and of course, that that is part of their history. Sad though it is, it's true.
1: These crops grow in human blood. They are the finest in Europe. The public gardens have the tallest fountains, and of any city since Thebes. The band concert will begin now. The cockpit, the bullring, the open air, cinema, the dance hall, the committee room and the black exchange are at work, turning their bloodshot melodies while Maritza tuned the two chords of her guitar.
2: The last image that illustrates the poem is a photograph Of Mehmet Ali's equestrian statue covered in canvas that's tightly bound onto it by rope. There's so much metaphor in that image. Power, grandeur, shrouded and lashed down with rope. Yes, you can read a lot into that. And why does Roland use it as the last image? Well, perhaps it's a symbol of. Power that is completely controlled and roped down in this moment, and perhaps, perhaps Mehmet Ali or the power of his love and his poem is one day going to be set free. The canvas will be stripped off, the ropes will be undone, and off he'll go, galloping into the distance. Perhaps that's what he's thinking. Perhaps that never occurred to him. The marvelous thing is that what he's done is given us here a wealth of images suggestions metaphors everything that we can think of and he would say if you asked him what does it all mean he would have said it's whatever you want to make of it and that's how i suggest if you get a chance to read this book that's what you do make of it what you will
0: I hope you've enjoyed this bumper episode. In the next one, Roland hurries back to Paris to meet Picasso to begin preparations for an important exhibition of Picasso's incredible artwork *Guernica*, whilst Lee continues her adventures up into the Bukovina region of Romania. The contributor to this episode was Anthony Penrose, son of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose, and co-director of the Lee Miller Archives based here at Farley's. Roland Penrose's letters and the poem The Road is Wider Than Long was read by Adam Grayson. Lee's letters and the narration is by me, Amy Bouhessen. The music is composed by David Cullen and the series is produced by Tolly Robinson. This episode is copyright the Lee Miller Archives 2021, all rights reserved.